For me, grace is something that descends. It's something that descends and reveals itself to us in moments of stillness and spaciousness. So I feel like what it requires from me is for me to be present, for me to be able to be silent, to be still, and to be in a space where I'm willing to deeply listen. And then grace descends or reveals herself. Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to the Glow Podcast. This week, Glow teacher Allie Owens is our guest host. Allie is in conversation with Tracy Stanley, author of two books, Radiant Rest, Yoga Nidra for Deep Relaxation and Awakened Clarity, and The Luminous Self, Sacred Yoga Practices and Rituals to Remember Who You Are. Tracy opened her first yoga studio in Los Angeles in 2001 and has been a successful Hollywood film producer. She is the founder of Empowered Life Circle, a sacred community and portal of practices, rituals, and tantric teachings inspired by her more than 25 years of study in Sri Vidya Tantra and the teachings of the Himalayan masters. Allie and Tracy dive into some of the topics in Tracy's newest book. They discuss yoga nidra, grace, the unconscious, intentions, dreams, and more. Tracy emphasizes the need for a yoga practice that is not just meant for us as individuals, but importantly for the collective to support community care. I so much appreciate her and her message and teachings, inviting us and guiding us to a deeper, meaningful engagement with ourselves, with others, and our natural environment. I highly recommend Tracy's book, which she refers to as a practice manual for life. Her book comes with access to six of her downloadable practices and two bonus practices. As Ali says in this episode, her book and her teachings are a gift to the world. I hope you enjoy Ali Owens' conversation with Tracy Stanley. Tracy, thank you so much for agreeing to come on the GLOW podcast. It is an honor to have you. When they asked me who I wanted to interview for the podcast, you were the first person that came to mind. And I'm just so honored that you said yes. Thank you so much for even thinking about me. It's been such a long time since we've seen each other. So this is such a beautiful uh, connection to be having again with you in this format. All right. So Tracy, I'm going to tell our audience a little bit about you and then we'll dive into your book. Tracy Stanley is the author of the best-selling book, Radiant Rest, Yoga Nidra for Deep Relaxation and Awakened Clarity. And the forthcoming, The Luminous Self, Sacred Yogic Practices and Rituals to Remember Who You Are by Shambhala Publications. Tracy is the founder of Empowered Life Circle, a sacred community and portal of practices, rituals, and tantric teachings inspired by more than 20 years of study in Sriviyata Tantra and the teachings of the Himalayan masters. Tracy is devoted to sharing the wisdom of Yoga Nidra, rest, meditation, self-inquiry, nature as a teacher, in ancestor reverence. She is gifted in illuminating the magic and power found in liminal space 
and weaving devotion and practice into daily life. Tracy, thank you so much for this gift, really, that you've given the world in this book that you've decided to write. I would love to learn a little bit about what inspired you to write this book. Well, thank you for asking. And it is something that you, you just mentioned, you mentioned the cycles, you mentioned the cycles that we see in nature, which are the cycles of life, right? They're the same patterns that we see reflected in our own lives or the patterns that we see reflected in nature. And sometimes it's easy to ignore these patterns and feel as though they don't exist, especially when it comes to ideas around impermanence. But I think that there's something that can inspire us around impermanence, and that's the fact that everything is subject to change, including the pain and the suffering and the discomfort that we might be in. And that if we have the right practices and if we have a devoted practice, that it is possible for us to transform. And in some ways, that transformation becomes like a death. And in some ways, the the practices and the new awarenesses that emerge are like a rebirth or a recreation. And there is a time, perhaps, that we have to be in that liminal space and the in-between of the not knowing and the confusion. And that's okay, because that's also a part of nature. So I would say that nature herself uh, definitely inspired the writing of this book. I would also say that Um, Some of the pain and discomfort that I experienced um, and also witnessed during the time of the early pandemic was also an inspiration. One of the things that I I noticed were that I I have a lot of friends and a lot of, you know, people who around me who practice lots of different types of yoga And what I think I noticed most was that many people suddenly realized that the yoga practice that they had was not working for them, that it had been a practice that was merely at a very shallow or surface level, and that the depth of the type of practices that they needed to sustain and hold them during a time of uncertainty were not there. And it was kind of like, you're you're not able to get them quickly. So I wanted to create a book that was a practice manual for life that had the types of practices that I have been practicing myself and that I have taught for decades that I know spark transformation. What I think is interesting about all of this, because it sounds wonderful, is that I actually conceived of this book before Um, I wrote Radiant Rest. Oh, wow. And I I myself needed to go through a transformation of sorts to be able to offer this book in its wholeness and fullness to the world. And so Radiant Rest for me um, was a portal into being able to offer these practices and some of the vulnerable stories that I offer to illustrate how the philosophies and the practices can work for you. Um, And so I often like to think of radiant rest as kind of a moon energy of nurturing and the luminous self as like a sun energy. 
Um, but the inspiration for the luminous self was to bring wholeness to all of us and freedom to all of us in a way that felt sustainable and accessible. I can certainly relate to that. Um, after giving birth to my first child, I was not able to practice in the same way that I was used to. And that was prior to the pandemic. And so I've been through this process three times already with, and each time I enter into that postpartum phase, I tend to lean on yoga nidra and meditation because my practice looks a little bit different. And I find that your meditations and practices in particular, because I've followed you across a couple different platforms now, are just so embodied. You can really see the work that you've put in to yourself and the care that you've put into the words that you've written and that they're all very intentional. Um, I'd like to read a part of the introduction um, because it'll lead into my next question. And this paragraph begins with, these practices are meant to be accessible, welcoming, and affirming. Take what works for you and leave the rest. I didn't write this book as a quick fix or a hack to enlightenment. In my experience, spiritual practice blossoms with devotion, consistency, inquiry, and curiosity. I offer these practices as a way to explore, weave, pray, and expand so that we may shake off the dust of being asleep to our power and ignite awareness of our inherent luminosity. So I'd love to chat a little bit about grace and the concept of giving yourself grace. I've often found that I am the hardest on myself. And even just that offering of giving yourself grace as you move through these practices, as you move through this transformation, um, can you speak a little bit about the theme of grace in your own life and the practices that you have in place that have gotten you to where you are today? Yeah, so grace, for me, grace is something that descends. It's something that descends and reveals itself to us in moments of stillness and spaciousness. So I feel like what it requires from me is for me to be present, for me to be able to be silent, to be still, and to be in a space where I'm willing to deeply listen. And then grace descends or reveals herself. Mm -hmm. And I feel that grace if I can put into words, which is really something difficult that is so ephemeral that it's hard to put into words. But each time that I feel the experience of grace, I feel like it's a blessing. Mm -hmm. And so if I can offer myself the blessing of the spaciousness, the blessing of not judging myself, the blessing of not trying too hard, not being in the doing all the time, all of those things to me are a blessing. And I think anytime that you offer yourself the space for a blessing to just kiss you, yes, that's grace. Oh, absolutely. You know, you see this in young children, 
all of the time. You see their presence and how they are just so fully present in the moment. And that blessing, I feel so lucky to have experienced that by witnessing, witnessing their growth and their development. So we got to know you a little bit in this book. I feel like you brought forth an experience that was quite vulnerable for you. Um, and I also listened to a podcast that you did with Shannon, I think on your own podcast, and you talked a little bit about maybe that experience. And I would love to know how, if you're willing to share a little bit about that experience and how it shaped and transformed you and provided a little bit of a trajectory as to where you are today. Yeah. So to read the whole thing or to know the whole story, you'll have to read the book, but essentially it's really this, um, experience of being bullied, mm -hmm. right. That I think so many of us can relate to. And you mentioned the podcast with, mm -hmm. uh, Shannon Algeo, and he also talks about in his book being bullied when he was younger. Yeah. And so for me, I think everyone has a different experience of being bullied, mm -hmm. right? Is that some people are bullied and maybe they're able to just brush it off. Other people are bullied and they become the bully. And then other people, like in my situation, I made myself smaller mm -hmm. and smaller and smaller so that I would be invisible thinking that the invisibility cloak was going to make me safe. Right. And I can absolutely relate to that as well. I've had my own experience of that as a child. And my experience with the yoga practice is constantly pulling back the Maya, right? The illusion of who you think you are. And you kind of start the book with that in terms of just dissecting who you think you are. In fact, it's the first question you ask is like, who am I mm -hmm. underneath the titles and the roles and the responsibilities? And a lot of those things we, we wear, right? Almost sometimes for protection. Absolutely. That's why the question uh, or the inquiry of who am I is so important because it's sometimes even easier to ask the question, who am I not? But for me, um, the practices that I've done through yoga have illuminated um, so much and given me such a much sharper discernment than I ever had. And also mm -hmm. epiphanies and realizations seem to drop in more often when we're in a consistent yoga practice. And I had an awareness uh, one day that something really exciting had happened in my life that would be something that you would normally want to share with other people. And what I realized was, oh, I actually don't want anyone to know about this because I'm afraid of being successful. Mm -hmm. And at the time I already was very successful I had a yoga studio that I owned. I was a Hollywood film producer. I have, was working with lots of, you know, A-list stars, which people could say was quote unquote successful. That's another debatable story about what success, true success really is. But I think what happened then, because thank goodness, I was lucky enough to have been given many different practices um, to help dissolve 
So the practices of Laya Yoga, practices of dissolution. I had been given practices of Vichara, which are the practices of of deliberation, deliberating about something to kind of reach the, the cause, reach the cure, reach the essence of something. Mm-hmm. And I started to do this practice of vichara to deliberate around what is this fear of success? And in the at the end of this practice, it took a while to get there. It was this bullying moment. Mm-hmm. The timeline meditation that you bring us on in the very beginning just brought me to tears. It was it was so nice to reflect and see the themes that have reoccurred in my life and to start where I am today and go all the way back to my very first memory. And then in all of these practices, you encourage the reader to write about it and to journal. And that becomes such a nice way to reflect on what you've experienced because it kind of transcends the mind and it goes into your feeling body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a way to integrate into process. Mm-hmm. That that was just so, it was so nice that you did that throughout the book. You talk a little bit about the windshield metaphor next and that, you know, that our lens, right? Our judgment can kind of cloud our lens. And if we don't use these practices to clear the windshield every so often that we end up looking through tainted, almost tainted glass, right? Um, Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, And maybe you can dive into the cliches and avidya in particular. Yeah, so, you know, This is just a a way to describe this idea of the samskaras or the imprints, the impressions that we're constantly receiving. We're constantly receiving. I right now have an impression, a samskara that's happening with you. And that samskara is informed by a past samskara of knowing Ali Owens from many years ago and seeing you at Yoga Works before you had a child, right? And so I've formed uh, a memory about Ali Owens that might not even be correct in this present day because I don't know the three little ones and the husband that is running around your house and how those experiences have shaped you with those samskaras, right? And so we're constantly receiving these impressions. We're constantly filing them as either good, bad, or neutral. And they're constantly building up over time to create a coloring. And that coloring starts to shape us because we start to react to the coloring of what we see on our windscreen. And if that coloring doesn't get cleaned off or there's no inquiry happening, that coloring eventually starts to create habits because now I start to react based on what I see on the windscreen. Even though if the windscreen was clear, I might see something completely different. And if that those habits keep going and going and going, they get concretized and that becomes our personality. And so in that place of personality, if you ask most people who they are, 
they will list off the things that relate to their personality, that maybe relate to their job, that relate to the things that they do in life. And then we have to ask ourselves, are we really the personality? Or is the personality the accumulation of all the samskaras and vasanas? And what is underneath the personality? That's what I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in the part of me that is really uh, eternal, that will be there when I no longer have a body. Yes. I wanted to read. Oh, yes. This is from page 33. When we are deep in a video, we might be presented with evidence to support something contrary to what we believe. And instead of pausing to investigate and inquire, we insist on seeing through our coloring on the windshield that already supports our belief about ourselves in the world. It's just such a powerful practice. And when you're raising children who are basically blank slates, this becomes the way that you transcend, I think, and another part of your work that you're very interested in, which is ancestral healing. So you see how these samskaras and these habits and these worldviews show up because they're mirroring back to you something that might be contrary to your belief system. And this is this has been how I think the practices have worked into my everyday life, mostly um, as a mother. So they're just a very powerful. Um, I'd love to learn a little bit more about ancestors and dreams. Um, this is another really potent part of your book where you give people an opportunity to connect with their ancestors to reclaim their heritage. And I think that was, I read your book uh, during a time when one of my, my grandparents passed away. Mm. So it was, a, it was an opportunity for me to heal what was grieving at that time. And to just to know that this everlasting essence, which you speak of is eternal, right? That that part, that part of not just you, but of everyone that has come before you, right. Is, is still present in some, some way. So if you could speak a little bit about that and your experience with that. Yeah. I think that, you know, when we ask these questions of who we are, there's something, um, that lives inside of us. It lives inside of our bones and our DNA. That is all the ancestors that came before us. And I think in Western culture, for many different reasons, whether your people were persecuted, whether they were removed from their homelands, whether they were captured and enslaved and brought to other places, there's so many different reasons why we're not connected to our original homeland. And I think that that is a source of grief that we don't even recognize. We're all longing to be connected to our own indigeneity, our own rituals, our own culture, our own lands. And we've been separated from those lands. And it's, it's no different than this idea of even climate grief 
right? It's not in our awareness until we actually experience a fire or we experience seeing something terrible that's happened in nature, some natural disaster in another place. But that grief is still running underneath the surface, whether we want to acknowledge that that's happening or not. So how do we connect with this part of ourselves that wants to be known? And so that to me is really honoring the ancestors, that even if you don't know who your ancestors are, because maybe you have been adopted, you can still do a DNA test and learn where they came from. And we can all begin to eat the foods of our ancestors and go to the places where they might have lived and start to create an ancestor altar that has their pictures and some water. And I have in the book a whole kind of ritual of how you can create your own ancestor altar. And that your ancestors, you wouldn't be here if it wasn't for their prayers. They, they prayed for this very moment right now of you breathing and living and thriving. And so we can, we can honor the ancestors that are well in spirit, that are the, the same ancestors that keep us protected in the subtle realms. You dive into the dream world after this and how Yoga Nidra can take us into that brainwave state of really shifting our belief systems. Can you talk a little bit about the power of this practice to retrain your subconscious mind? Yeah, I mean, Yoga Nidra, um, there's two things I would say is that when we think about Yoga Nidra, most of the time in the West, we are thinking about this technique where we lie down and we are guided to systematically relax the body, right? Yes. And it's a beautiful mm -hmm. practice, but that practice is actually the practice of deep relaxation, mm -hmm. right? The practice of yoga nidra is not a practice. Yoga nidra is a state of consciousness. And so it's just like we really can't say we're doing yoga, right? Yoga is either in the room or it's not. Mm -hmm. Yoga is also a state of consciousness. All we are doing is preparing to receive the grace of yoga nidra because we are creating the space and we are preparing ourselves to receive that grace. So yoga nidra as a state of consciousness is very similar if we think about we're and the waking, the dreaming, the deep sleep, the fourth state, which is known as Turiya, which is said to be peace beyond words. Yoga Nidra is that portal that leads into Turiya. And Turiya is a space that really cannot be described because it is both empty and full, right? So Yoga Nidra, a lot of times, there's a lot of talk about Sankalpa, in this practice of yoga nidra and mm -hmm. sankalpa is has been defined as many things but one of the root words of sankalpa is truth and kalpa is often defined as the rule that follows or a space of time and so 
a lot of people love to kind of bring a sankalpa into yoga nidra and allow that to come in in a space where we are very receptive, right? Where perhaps we are not any longer in the beta brainwave state. We may have even moved beyond a dominant alpha brainwave state and moving more into the theta and delta spaces where we can do that reprogramming. And that's why people will bring Sankalpa into Yoga Nidra. The only thing that I would say about that is we must be very careful about what Sankalpa are we creating? Because if we are creating, and this is pulling the thread now on what you uh, brought up earlier about avidya, if we are creating a Sankalpa out of avidya, it will lead us into more suffering. So it is really important for us to create a auspicious sankalpa, or what some teachers in the Himalayan tradition have said is a sankalpa that is beyond all doubt. And there's many different ways in which you can unearth a sankalpa that is beyond doubt, but it's not a quick thing. You know, so it really is a process when we work with Sankalpa that is something that really needs to be respected. And it has to have a lot of inquiry and a lot of time to devote to finding that Sankalpa. And at the same time, I would argue that Yoga Nidra is, as a state of consciousness, it's a place that is beyond thought. It is a place of non-doing. So at some degree, when you are bringing in a sankalpa, a sankalpa is a thought. Mm -hmm. So you're really, in my opinion, and I'm sure others will differ, that you're bringing in a thought basically to a very, very, very deep relaxation practice, which is still very powerful and very effective. And so when we're in the dream world, the dream world is really another realm. And the Buddhists talk about these different realms that happen in the dream world. But the dream world or the realm of the dreams is, a, is really a valid place of knowing. And so if you do any research or readings into Sri Aurobindo, he talks about the dream world being the night school, the night sadhana, that the yogis who know are practicing in the night. The yogis who know are practicing and are awake when others are sleeping. That relates to yoga nidra. That also relates to the dream world. And so we could go down a very long rabbit hole here but what I would say is that when we start to honor our dreams as a valid source of knowing, our lives shift in a much different way. Even if you're the type of person who is thinking, oh, well, I don't even remember my dreams. I don't, I don't dream. When you start to practice yoga nidra, my experience has been that most people's dreams start to become more awakened. And there's some practices that I wrote about in Radiant Rest around placing a mantra or an affirmation in the heart prior to sleeping and then retrieving that mantra or that affirmation 
in the space between being asleep and waking up. And so that becomes another thread that you pull through the realm of the dreams, the realm of sleeping as a practice. So we really can be weaving a practice throughout the 12 hours or however long it is from the moment you place that mantra in and the moment you wake up, there is a way to practice while we are sleeping. And it's very powerful because that um, is the true place really of being reprogramming, if you want to say, if you want to use that word, the unconscious. But we, we must, if we're going to be working with Sankalpa and affirmations, it's really important for us to be working with those in a way that are life affirming for us and not keeping us in a pattern of suffering. Yes. You say that in the book, page 133, all too often we are tempted to use our practices to extract, manifest, and become more powerful in a hierarchical way. Remember that attachment to Cindy's or special powers is an obstacle to liberation. Instead, as you cultivate this relationship with your dreaming self and begin to explore the divine within you through the world of dreams, be open and let go to the need to figure things out from the level of the mind. Yeah, the cities, they they are obstacles to yoga. It's written about in the Yoga Sutras. Yes. I find that humility in your in your practice, whether that's with your physical postures or the meditations that you do, just maintaining that humility throughout your practice has been also a wonderful part of this experience. I'd like to talk a little bit about finding your do word. Mm. And that comes at a part of the book when we've just gone through one of the death practices. And I really enjoyed that practice because you took us from a very vast period of time to a very short period of time. And it was very self-affirming for me in terms of how I'm spending my time. And going back to, you know, just being hard on myself, the constant hustle, the need to be doing, whereas I'm a little bit more in a state of being right now because that's what my children are asking of me. And so for, for me, my do word became love and my kids. And so I'd love to learn a little bit about your experience working with your do word and if it's shifted over time. Um, well, the only thing I can say is that my do word is also love and, okay. <laughs> and it hasn't shifted. I've done this practice many times and it always comes to the same, to the same word. And the practice that you're referring to is really a practice that really boils things down very quickly in five minutes. Um, and this is, I'm really grateful that Shambhala allowed me to record eight practices. So there's six downloadable practices and two bonus practices that come with the book. Um, and this is one of them. So you, it's a, it's a practice that I think is better done listening to the practice and doing it. And for the teachers, the outline of the practice is there. So you can go back and refer to it. But I think that this practice just brings us very quickly to the core essence of what is important to us, what is most important to us, what is the essence of what 
we want our life to be. And so why wait until the end of our life? Why not bring that back to the present moment now and start making everything that you do be infused with that frequency? And if it's not infused with that frequency or it can't be infused with that frequency, we need to, I think, take a look at what's really happening and be more discerning. You talk a lot about community care and how this how this word or how this essence can not only just affect your own personal well-being, but how it can help heal the collective. Yes. You know, our practice is not just for us. I know we, <laughs> we really focused in the West on this hyper individualism and that I want to get mine and I want to be enlightened. But, you know, the true practice is to bring you back to your true self, to bring you back to your true nature. And once you have a taste of that true nature, that the, the kind of experience of that usually will propel you to want to share with others. And so until that actually happens, the practices that we need to do should be revolving around community care because the community being uplifted, the community being awakened, the people around you being freed up is what's going to change the world. I really just really loved your book. There are so many, there are so many excerpts from this book that I feel I will take with me for years to come. And these practices, I feel I can return to time and time again when we're going through these micro or massive transformations, right? Because we can see that in nature. I'm lucky to see the trees transform colors and shed their leaves and then rebirth new leaves in the new year. And it truly is something that I think everyone can relate to. That experience of letting go, shedding, dying, and being reborn in some way, shape, or form. Um, so thank you so much for writing this book. It is a gift to the world, as are you. Oh, thank you. And I'm so thankful that you are able to come on today. You have, the book is being released and you also have a book club, I believe. I do. Can you tell our listeners about all of yeah, that? Yeah. So the book is coming out on October 10th. And as everybody probably knows, the pre-order period is very, very important for authors. Um, it really relates to how many books get ordered. So if you're inspired to pre-order the book, um, one of the things that happens with that is that you can go to my website and register for the four-week live uh, free book club. And that's where we're really going to be going into the philosophies and the practices deeply in community. And as we know, community is supportive, it's reflective, and it's also activating. Um, so that's what's happening with the book. I'll be doing a little mini book tour um, kind of in Santa Fe, LA, Arizona, um, and New York, if I didn't say that already and um, some virtual book events as well. And where and where can they find you online? Oh, I can be found online at Tracy with two E's, stanley.com. 
And you can also find me on Instagram at Tracy with two E's underscore Stanley. Well, thank you so much. It has been an honor to chat with you today and a much long overdue conversations. And I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you so much, Allie. It's been an honor to be with you. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider at Red Cub Agency for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find the GLOW podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.